Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you, and uh, for those of you who are joining us online, we're glad to have you also. How many of you have people in your life that you love, that you're familiar with, that you think you know them better than they know themselves? Do you feel like uh, there's times where you, you think, you know what, I, I think I maybe know them a little better than they know themselves. Catherine had a night shift last night, so I warned her I was going to, uh, going to tell a story on her, and she's okay with it. I told her what the story was, but there was a thing early in our marriage where uh, I had a lose-lose situation on my hands. If ever we were watching TV or a movie, if Catherine started to doze off, she would, let's say she fell asleep on the couch. I would wake her up. Hey, the movie's done. It's time to go to bed. She'd get really upset with me. Why did you wake me up? I was asleep. I was content. No, no, let me lay here a little longer, okay? So next time we watch a movie or a TV show, what do you think I do? What do you think? As a good husband, all right, she fell asleep. I'm going to just go to bed. Next morning, why did you let me sleep on the couch? I've got a terrible crick in my neck. Ugh, you should have woken me up. Ugh. So, from then on, anytime we're watching something and she remotely starts to doze off, I'm like, nope, that's it. Get up, get up, get up. Because I'm like, all right, we got to start watching this in our room because that way, if you do fall asleep, we're not in trouble. And she's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll stay awake. I'll be, no, I can see it. You're yawning. We're at three yawns. You know, we're, that's it. Okay, so... This is an example where now, over time, she does realize this about herself, but this is an example where when you know someone really well, and something that we can all agree with, when we know someone really well, most of the time what they say and what they do line up together. But there are times when no matter what they say, our actions display what we really believe or is true about what they're going to do, okay? What we know about them shines in how we decide to act. So many of you probably have examples of having an employee or a coworker who you depend on, and your actions show that, you know, maybe they're not the most dependable person because you're constantly double-checking with them. You know, are you sure that you emailed the client? And are, okay, are we sure that we made that reservation? And it's not because of anything that they said, it's because you've been around them enough where you're like, you know what? There's some occasions where they maybe let things slip through the cracks. By the way, if you don't ever do that, that means you're probably that person. I'm just kidding. But, um, but I know those people in my life who are just so impressive in that the second I say, hey, we need to get this done, Melissa's a great example of this. Melissa will think through 12 different ways in which we need to make sure that the RSVPs are ready. We've sent out an email. We've done. She is great at making sure. And I never have to go, Melissa, are you sure you put that in the bulletin? Are you sure that you sent that out? She's on it. You with me? My actions show that I trust what she's going to do, okay? No matter what is said. And we have a story that we're going to read about today, which is arguably the most, I don't know, top 10 most famous stories in the Bible. Uh, that, that's debatable. I'll, I'll do a poll maybe sometime. I would say this is way up there. It definitely was a favorite of mine growing up. But we're going to read this story about three men who put their life on the line because of what they believed about who God was. Their actions showed what they knew about God, who he was. 
And so before we read the story, last week I read all of Daniel 2. I didn't get anybody sending any complaints, but personally I, I felt like it, it dragged a little bit. So I'm not going to read all of Daniel 3, but I'm going to introduce it and then we'll pick up halfway through. But Daniel 3 begins with King Nebuchadnezzar, who we met last week, or two weeks ago, building this incredibly tall and slender statue covered in gold. And he has a goal. He wants to try and unite the kingdom in one religion and worshiping one thing, this statue that he's made. And so he tells everyone, whenever you hear the music play, the harp, the lyre, the zither, all these different instruments, you are to bow down and worship this idol immediately. And if you don't, you will be thrown into this fiery furnace. And I didn't ever really wonder what that, this furnace looked like when I was growing up because VeggieTales showed me what the furnace looked like. But uh, just picture that this empire was built with these massive bricks. And this is probably like a kiln that would have been used to form these massive bricks to build different structures. And so he said, listen, if you're not going to do what I say, you're going to be thrown into one of these furnaces. And so we hear the music and everybody bows down. Everybody worships immediately. But... There are a few of the king's wise men who see over there some other wise men named, their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but their Babylonian names, which you're more familiar with, are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they see that they're not bowing down. And these wise men, this is their opportunity. These, these Jewish exiles who are now their bosses, they're like, okay, here we go. We're finally going to get a chance to get these guys out of, out of here they go to the king and they snitch to the king. They say, hey, this, these three guys that are your wise men, they're not bowing down. So the king is embarrassed. He brings them in, tries to save face and says, listen, I'm going to give you another opportunity. I'm going to play this music again and you have a chance to bow down. But if you don't, you're going to be thrown in the furnace. And so we'll pick up there at Daniel chapter 3, starting in the, the second half of verse 15. We have King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, If you do not bow down to the statue after you hear the music, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then we have this great ironic comment that he makes. This is our third chapter in a row where the king makes a comment where we as an audience know the answer already. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand, my strong, powerful authority? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. That, what I just read is one of the most famous passages, at least in Daniel, maybe in the whole Bible. We know our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to you. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Remember, this is not that he had a dial, and it was set on 100, and he turned it up to 700. This is kind of a hyperbolic way of saying he turned it all the way up, seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the, burning, and into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're supposed to see some, another layer of irony. 
King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to hurt God's servants in the fire, and they're going to be fine, and the king's servants are not going to be fine. It's kind of an ironic twist. The ones that were throwing them in the fire, they're the ones that get killed. And, at, you know, spoiler warning, uh, as you'll see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't. And these men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the, the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor had a hair on their heads of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So we see uh, this beautiful story. I actually, I did a series not too long ago where we talked about different times where God appeared in the Old Testament. And I, so I've preached this sermon recently, and I focused on this idea of in the fire, who is this fourth person? Lots of people want to talk about who is it? Is it, is it Jesus incarnate? Who, and and we, we did that sermon already. I can find it for you if you want to hear it again. The thing I want to focus more on this week, the thing I want to focus on because this is part of the message of Daniel that we've been saying throughout is when you are in a place that is unsympathetic to God and to following God, who are you going to be? What kind of life are you going to live in a place that doesn't care about about following these kind of rules. When you're faced with situations where your faith and your obedience to God come in conflict with the rules of the area, what kind of life are you going to live? I, I mentioned last week when my mom would drop me off to spend the night at a friend's house, she'd say, remember who you are and whose you are. Both remember, remember to act like you should act and behave, but also remember you're, you're God's child in this place. And I'm sure many of you have been on sleepovers before where you know that's certain times where if that family that you're a part of going to their house isn't a Christian household, that might be the first time I heard some things that were different than what my parents raised me. So I'm facing that. And this question that the book of Daniel is constantly acting is, you Israelites in this foreign place, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to be loyal? And so today I want to focus on that. I want to focus on the obedience and the loyalty of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So there's this quote by a preacher, theologian, named Richard Foster, and it's going to be the driving force of the rest of the talk. The more clearly we understand the nature of God, the more clearly we understand how we are to live. I was reading a book by this guy this week, read this line, and basically thought, okay, I've got to... I could use this in pretty much every sermon for the rest of my life, but 
I thought of it very clearly for this sermon. The more clearly we understand who our God is, the more clearly we know who he is, the more clearly we understand how we are to live. Whenever I started the sermon, I talked about when you know someone really well, you know how you ought to live. I could have started the sermon by saying, husbands and wives, the longer you're married to each other, the more you understand these are the things that are good for our marriage and bring life. These are the things that bring death and pain into our marriage. And you understand more clearly how you should live. My joke with Catherine is, you know, she fell asleep on the couch. No matter what she said, oh no, I'll be fine. I started to understand how this was going to work because of how I knew her clearly. So the first thing I'm going to do is talk about three things that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego knew about God. The first thing that they knew is we know, and, and we get to know these things too, we know our God is powerful and sovereign. King Nebuchadnezzar says, who's going to save you now from my hand, my, all the power that I have? Their response clearly demonstrates that they know someone who is more powerful than him, no matter what authority it looks like he has. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, from this fire, and he will deliver us, your majesty. They say that because they know the power of God. We know our God is with us in the fire. God tells his people over and over in scripture, and this is something we need to be reminded all the time, we are never promised in the Bible that we will be kept from trials, pain, and persecution. I'm not going to make you repeat after me because you're not children, but say that in your head. The Bible never promises us that we will be kept from pain, trials, persecution, heartache, heartbreak. The Bible never promises us that. What the Bible does promise us is that he will be with us in the trials, the persecution, the heartbreak. Now, for some of us, that may not be all that reassuring. What's the point of coming in here every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night if you're telling me it doesn't keep me from the bad stuff? That's what I thought I was in this for, to keep me from all those bad things that everyone else goes through. That's not the truth. The truth is, is that we come in here because we have a God who is with us in those trials, in those fires. And the third thing that we know, because the third thing that these three men demonstrate by their actions, that they knew about God, and this one is incredibly important, they know and we know that even if God does not rescue us, he is still powerful, he is still with us, and he is still worthy of praise. Whenever they made their comment where they said, we know our God is able to save us, then they say, he will save us. And then they say, but even if he doesn't, we will still worship him. I think it's really powerful and it's really important for us to realize that we are able in the same breath to be able to look at situations and go, well, I was expecting God to save me in that and it didn't look like it did the way I wanted him to. But we still can't let that be the place where we go, okay, well, I guess he isn't powerful. I guess he isn't with me. I guess he's not worthy of being praised anymore. They had a confidence that, the, that even if they didn't get the results from life that they wanted, he's still worthy of being praised. He's still worthy of being followed because he's still powerful and he's still with them. And I want you to think in times in your life, when, are, when and where are places where you can look and you can say, God, you were supposed to make this whole having children thing be perfect. And it hasn't been. God, you were supposed to make this raising children thing be if I get them to church at 9 a.m. and I get them on Wednesday night at 6 or 7 p.m., then it's supposed to go great, right, God? And when those things don't happen, if you 
like is, is completely understandable. If you start to go, I guess God isn't God. I guess he's not with me. I guess he's not powerful. I guess it's not worth all this. You know what that shows me? First of all, it shows me that you're a normal person. You're someone that's like, hey, I don't, I'm struggling here, God. But it also shows me that what you know about God is based on what we get from him, based on the results we're supposed to receive. But if you, like these three men, know our God is worthy of praise no matter what we get from him. And, and another thing, I want you to put them in their, I want, to, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. They have been raised their whole life that Jerusalem is God's holy city, that the, the temple is his footstool, okay? That's where they are to dwell. And not that long ago, a foreign king came and conquered Jerusalem. A foreign king came and destroyed it. How many Israelites do you think were sitting there going, I'm not sure how powerful our God is if this foreign king can come win over here. I'm not sure how good he is if he's willing to let captives be taken in chains and led to Babylon. I'm not sure. And so we know that the reason why these men know this about God is because they've lived it. They were defeated. They were in a place where they saw, I don't see God looking very powerful right now. I don't see God looking like he's right here next to me as our city burns and we're led into exile. And yet they came to a place because of what they knew that he is still God and he's still worthy of being praised. And so going back to Richard Foster's quote, the more clearly we understand who God is, the nature of God, the more clearly we understand how we are to live. So therefore, because we know God is powerful, because we know he is with us, because we know that no matter what we see as results, he's still worthy of praise, therefore, we remain loyal, faithful, and obedient, even to death. The actions of the three men were rooted in their complete assurance of what they knew about the character of God. If any one of those three truths were not present, I'm not sure that they would be able to go through what they went through. If any one of those truths you pulled out, I'm not sure they would be able to say, okay, well, God's got us. I'm not sure they wouldn't have gone, okay, 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 just a sec. My, I've got old knees, let me bow down to this statue. But they didn't because they had these truths. And the question that now we get to ask ourselves is when we're faced, now I don't know if any of us in our lifetime will be faced with a fiery furnace, but we will and have already probably faced different things, different fires, different challenges, different ways in which our surroundings are going to say, you better bow down, you better do what we think you ought to do. And you are going to face those with a question of, but I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's what God wants me to do. I don't know if that's what's right. And here is how we get to act, how we get to live our lives facing these different trials. We get to know that God is powerful. God asks Job, where were you whenever we founded the found when I founded the foundations of the earth? Whenever Jesus is in front of Pilate, Pilate says to him, don't you know that I have the power to sentence you to death? And Jesus says, all the power you have is, comes from God. You don't have any power over me. We get to know that also. We also get to know that the same power that blessed Abraham and Sarah in their old age with a child, that's our God still. We get to know that the same God that parted the Red Seas and let the people of Egypt out, that's our God. We get to know that the same God who helps a child learn how to speak, who's never been able to communicate before, that's our God. We get to know that the power of God who allows us to be able to do everything, to breathe, to live, that is still our God. We still know that. We still know that he's in the fire with us. Isaiah 43 says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
The waves, they won't consume you. When you pass through the fire, you won't be burned. Joshua 1, 9 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. He's always with us. No matter where you are, that looks like he couldn't possibly be there with you. He's there with you. We know that even if he does not rescue us, he is still powerful, he is still with us, and still worthy of praise. I thought about the stoning of Stephen's story in Acts. It's a very similar story where you have someone who is being told you need to change what you're saying. You need to change your actions. Just like these three men. And what does Stephen do? He proclaims the gospel. He preaches the message still. And guess what? A fourth angel shows up. One like the Son of God shows up next to Stephen and he lives and survives. And they elevate him to the highest place. That's not what happens, right? Stephen dies. He's the first Christian martyr. And so we can look at that and go, well, wait a second, God, aren't you still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And they would tell you, well, and Stephen would tell you, we decided going into that fire, we knew no matter what happened, we were still going to praise him and we weren't going to bow down. And sometimes it doesn't look like the story in Daniel. Sometimes it looks like the story in Acts. And of course, the greatest example of all these is we see this true in Jesus, God's own son, God incarnate. He was not rescued from death on the cross. Yes, he was, but you know what I mean. He, he did die on the cross. It would be very unchristian of me to say, well, you know, he died on the cross, but no. The first thing we have to say is he did die. He was, he allowed death to defeat him. But then God rescued him. And after God rescued him, he made a way for all of us to be ones where we get to look and we get to say, look at our Savior. Our Savior is powerful, powerful even over death. And yet, he's still with us in death. And he reminds us over and over again that the first step to being one of his disciples is not to have a God who keeps us from death, but have a God who invites us to death, to die to ourselves, to die to this world, to die to all the different things that can keep us from living how God wants us to live. Whenever Jesus was on the cross, he quotes from Psalm 22, and he quotes someone that sounds like they are remaining loyal and faithful and obedient even to death. He says, so we only hear from Matthew and Mark, we hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we know that he's quoting the entire Psalm 22. When he says those words, every Jewish listener who heard that knew that whole psalm. It's just like whenever Martin Luther King says, I have a dream. If you hear someone say, I have a dream, you know that they're referencing the entire speech, right? This is Jesus referencing the entire Psalm 22. On the cross, he says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he was not despised or scorned. The suf- he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. If you and I know the truths about God, these three things, and, and obviously I could list many more things we know about God. If we know these things are true, we will know how to live when we face our own circumstances. We will be able to display the loyalty and obedience that's demonstrated by these three men. And the, and the thing I, w- I want to say before I close, and then I, I hope that this makes sense. I remember reading a book about funerals one time. I've told you before, I'm kind of fascinated by a Christian funeral. And one of the things that the book said you need to repeat over and over again is that when you are doing a funeral of a Christian servant, man or woman, that 
Yes, that person may have had great parents that raised them to know God. They may have had great spouses that helped them grow in God. That, it, that may be true. But the reason why this person is a faithful servant is because of one thing only, because of their faith in Christ. You with me? It's not that they did a good enough job of being a son or a daughter. It's not that they did a good enough job of being a husband or spouse. They kept the rules and did all the steps. That's not it. It's that Jesus Christ was the Lord of their life and they had given their life to him and his grace was sufficient. That is what made them a faithful servant. These three men, they are not heroes because they were endowed with some special, heroic, courageous qualities. They are not superheroes. These three men are just like you and I. They are three people, ordinary people, who knew the truth about God's power, about his faithfulness to be present in tough times, and about the fact that he was worthy of obedience and praise no matter the cost. And we have the exact same opportunity to know those truths and let our lives reflect that in our obedience to him today. If any of you would like to know more about what it means to be someone who gives their life to Christ, someone who makes their life about obeying him and being able to stand up to the different difficult things that we're going to face the rest of our lives and, and for the rest of our children, our grandchildren's lives, there's a person named Jesus Christ who I want to introduce you to. And if any of you have any prayer requests, you're going through the fire right now and you need elders to pray with you, our elders are going to be standing at the doors while we stand and while we sing this song.